science. We're going to do our best to uh, bring you uh, some of the stories behind the news, science stories uh, behind the news and uh, in the news and, uh, well, wherever they come from. Uh, This one's actually a a national story, uh, which is it's uh, the BBC has said that David Attenborough is to present the Blue Planet sequel. And that immediately uh, makes me turn to my colleague, Andrew uh, Andrew Johnson, is an old colleague of mine, Andrew. (laughs) Glester, who um, uh, you're a big fan of uh, David Attenborough, aren't you? And and Blue Planet, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I know, it's amazing. It's It's an absolutely amazing series. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I can't believe it's, it was 2001 that they did the Blue Planet the first time around, and it's coming back again this year. Yeah. Um, Just such a wonderful um, series. I think the thing about uh, Blue Planet and Frozen Planet, for me, which kind of set them apart from all the other series that they've done, which are all, you know, kind of the best thing on television as far as I'm concerned. The, um, the, the thing that sets those two out is that it takes you to a place that most of us don't get to. You know, most yeah. of us... But it's possible for us to get to these places. It's po- possible for us to get to the poles. It's possible for us to get to the depths of the ocean. But we're really unlikely to do it. <laughs> Whereas, you know, we can go on holiday fairly easily to some of the places you see in some of the other series, you know, yeah. Africa and... Um, the Americas and things. It, it's possible to do that. Yeah. Whereas Blue Planet, it's it's like another world, isn't it? You know that I'm obsessed with wow. exoplanets. Yes. I feel like Frozen Planet and Blue Planet are like other worlds right here on planet Earth that we can yes. explore. And it's frequently said, of course, uh, that we know so little, relatively speaking, about the the, the depths of the oceans no, because absolutely. we're talking about enormous pressures and uh, all yeah. of that sort of thing and uh, vast distances. Mm, so absolutely. we're discovering things and seeing things that we haven't seen. Well, I think Sir David Attenborough himself did actually say that uh, we know more uh, about the surface of the moon than we do. uh, (laughs) I would would stress that that doesn't mean we need to... Stop exploring the moon. <laughs> no, we need course. to do both of these yeah. things. But yeah, no, it's fantastic. And obviously, um, both the science has moved on a lot. We've found out an awful lot about the the ocean since then. There's going to be some amazing discoveries. I'm sure that they've they've made during the filming process, and also the 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 filming. Uh, and the cameras and everything has just moved on so much. So it wasn't HD back in 2001. That didn't exist. Yeah. So getting this HD footage from the oceans, I'm just so excited yes. about this. It's yes, and camera technology in general has uh, has yeah. moved on. So it's, it's not just the high definition, but it's also the types of cameras yeah. that they use, you know, how far yeah. they can go, the size of them, the, the, where they, where they can get. So they've, they've actually, I believe, got um, suction cameras on the back of... Orcas, so they, they, we were actually going to be seeing yeah. what it's like to swim as an orca in in the oceans. They're going right to the depths of uh, of, of um, these vents down at the bottom of the. Oh, the right. These are the ones that are volcanic vents yeah, that are spewing so. out noxious yeah. substances. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And because yeah, there are creatures, aren't they? They call them extremophiles, yeah. I think, which uh, actually have lived there for Absolutely. extremely long time yeah. and uh, they live in conditions that we no, no other living creature seems to be able to bear no absolutely and they, it, it those 
I mean, there's people, there's extremophiles living down at the bottom of the ocean with where there's no light, there's no oxygen, which makes you think if you're looking at for life on other planets, then you need to look everywhere, don't you? I mean, absolutely. Well, this this, this is the story. So David Attenborough will present the sequel to 2001's Blue Planet, uh, according to the BBC. The seven-part series, which is going to be shown later this year, will aim to highlight recent scientific discoveries. Filming innovations include, as uh, Andrew's been saying, suction cameras fitted to the backs of orcas. And uh, Sir David Attenborough, of course, uh, is thrilled uh, to be joining the new exploration. Uh, the BBC Natural History Unit, which is based here uh, in Bristol, uh, something we're very proud of, spent four years filming off every continent and in every ocean for Blue Planet 2 with support from marine scientists. James Honeybourne, the series exec, uh, executive producer, said the oceans are the most exciting place to be right now because new scientific discoveries have given us a new perspective Perspective of life beneath the waves. That's the most uh, exciting place to be, except, of course, in this studio. Yeah, or listening, uh, to, or listening to this programme, which is even better <laughs> than that. Um, you're listening to uh, Love and Science on BCFM. We're looking at science in the news. And there's, um, well, just to go back to David Attenborough for a moment, who's going to... Uh, uh, present the next series of Blue Planet. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, a series of Blue Planet without yes. David Attenborough. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah, would just is. be wrong. Yeah. But he's 90 years of age. Yeah. Extraordinary that yeah, uh, he's still... A lot of people would be, you know, feet up yeah. in, in the hammock. You know, thanks yeah. very much. I enjoyed all that. But he's sharp and, uh, uh, yeah. and uh, just as compelling a broadcaster as he always has been. Absolutely. I was talking to some of the producers of uh, Planet Earth 2, actually, recently. And uh, they were saying about him that he, he, he's just still got that kind of all-seeing eye, the sharpness, the, the, the knowledge that nobody else has. Yeah. And actually, when the producers are putting together the, the episodes, one of the, 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 the golden sort of... What's the word I'm looking for? The, the thing that they want to... I was going to say oh, golden hat. The, yes. the thing that they're looking for that's... That, that, yes. That, that, uh, the golden the, ratio, the golden thread. Yes, the, whatever it is. The, the thing, thing that they want most yeah. is to come up with an idea that he's never seen. <laughs> and it's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I imagine. Yes, he's seen most things. Well, staying with... Uh, in fact, we've got another... Um, after, we're going to have another piece of music in a, in a bit. And uh, then we're going to uh, be joined by... Uh, on the phone um, by uh, a scientist uh, who's uh, now a uh, television... Working in uh, television, making wildlife films and doing some extraordinary stuff. Her name's Katie Parrott, and we'll get to her soon. But before that, an, another wildlife story, um, which by this time normally would have done about three space stories, but, you know, <laughs> uh, we're, we're sticking with natural history. And uh, um, there's this extraordinary tale of um, some a team at Harvard saying that they might be able to create hybrid mammoth elephant embryos yeah. in two years. So this takes us back to Jurassic Park, doesn't it? This, it is, does, this, is, the, yeah. this is the fictional... Now, whatever Andrew is about to say, <laughs> the fictional film Jurassic Park, which basically takes uh, DNA from ancient samples of insects in amber. The insects, the theory is that insects have bitten on the blood, so a mosquito bitten on the blood of a dinosaur. You take that blood, you isolate the DNA of the, of the dinosaur, uh, and from that you're able to cultivate um, a... Uh, new dinosaur. That's that's the thing. Of course, that turns out to be incredibly difficult. But 
yeah. the woolly wait, mammoth. Wait, but, 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 but hang on, hang on, hang on <laughs> a second. Are you telling me Jurassic Park is in the documentary? I am. I'm sorry. It is a, not a documentary, oh. but it's a very, very good film. Yeah. The woolly mammoth actually vanished from the Earth only 4,000 years ago. So human beings met woolly mammoths. Uh, but now scientists say they're on the brink of resurrecting the ancient beast in a revised form through an ambitious feat of genetic engineering. And uh, speaking ahead of the AAA, uh, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the AAAS annual meeting in Boston this week, leading uh, scientists on this, uh, called it a de-extinction effort. Mm. And the Harvard team says it's just two years away from creating a hybrid embryo embryo in which the mammoth traits would be programmed into an Asian elephant because the Asian elephant is the nearest thing to a mammoth. A mammoth looks like a huge woolly elephant. Uh, It it isn't the same as an elephant, but it's got uh, a lot of similarities and you might think at first glance it's kind of like a a hairy elephant. Um, And uh, another uh, speaker on this, Professor George Church, said it would be more like an elephant with a number of mammoth traits, uh, but we reckon it can happen in a number of years, and they're going to call it a mammophant. Okay. What, yeah. do, you, what do you think of that? Well, I, I, you know, I don't know really what I think about it. I, if they're anything like um, elephants, then you'll need to bring back quite a few of them because they're very social animals, aren't they? And that would seem unfair to bring them yeah, on. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Uh, or not bring them back because this would be a new but, thing. But if, but if they are like elephants, then you would think they would be social beings. Yeah. Um, well, maybe may uh, the... Uh, a group, I was going to say, a tribe, a herd, a yeah. herd of elephants will, will actually ad- adopt it. Yeah, yeah, that's possible. But you're right, that would be a very cruel thing to yeah. be the only one of your species on the planet, yeah. deliberately. Like data in Star Trek. Like <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, going back to documentaries. The, <laughs> is, uh, it's, uh, the other thing, because um, the reason to do it, quite apart from we can, so why, why not? Because it's amazing. The, the reason to do it is actually something to do with climate change, isn't it? Because the, the tundra... Yes, it's um, melting. Yeah. And they, and so the frozen tundra... So we're talking about Siberia now, yeah? Yeah. And they, that's, that's melting because yeah. of climate change. Yeah. And uh, the mammoths not being around is, is a part of that because what mammoths would do is in the summer they'd knock down the trees which would allow flowers to grow on the tundra and that would change the climate and in the winter they would um, smash through snow drifts and keep things flowing keep the wind blowing across the tundra and 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 that them not being there has changed fundamentally the the environment of the of the tundra. So if we could introduce them back, then it could have quite an impact on on climate change and in a positive way. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard hard to imagine how that would happen. Maybe may, maybe um, if if it works and they do have this what would, what do we call it a ma- a mammophant? Yeah. Uh, then. Um, uh, and maybe another one, maybe they they could breed, but I mean, this seems incredibly far fetched at this stage. Really but you never, you never know. They're using uh, a uh, a method called CRISPR. Uh, the mam- the mammoth genes for these traits are spliced into the elephant DNA using the powerful gene editing tool, gene editing tool CRISPR, which over the last eighteen months or so we've heard quite a a, 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 a lot about. It says, until now, the team have stopped at the cell stage, but they're now moving towards creating embryos, although they said it would be many years before any serious attempt 
would be made to produce a living creature, well, at least uh, two, two and a half, a half years. Can I just interject there slightly, just yeah. to say that um, if you are interested in this topic, you can go back to our first ever podcast of Love and Science, which you can find at loveandscience.podbean.com, where you can find an interview with Beth Shapiro, who has written all a, a book all about how to clone a woolly mammoth. And Podbean, we should say, is a way to listen to Love and Science from BCFM uh, without the music. Yeah. Now, we can't think why you would want to do that because we choose such fabulous music. No, we, we understand some people are very busy and they just want to get hold of uh, the news stories that we're talking about and, of course, our fabulous conversation. <laughs> so, uh, so that's why you can go to Love and Science at podbean.com. I don't know if any of you have uh, seen the BBC Two series Special Forces Ultimate Hell Week, uh, but we should have on the line Katie Parrott. Hi, Katie. Hiya, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, I'm amazed that you're still alive, and, or at least, <laughs> at least all in one piece, because you were in this programme, Special Forces Ultimate Hell Week, uh, and um, the, the... Well, I, I'm going to get you to tell us about that in just a minute, which was just an extreme... It seems to me to be an extremely gruelling uh, challenge. Before you tell us about that, let's just hop backwards and uh, talk, talk about... Uh, about your background a little bit more. You're a biologist, aren't you, really, by training? <coughs> yeah, sorry, yes. Uh, I did an undergraduate uh, biology degree at Bath University. Yeah. So I finished that a couple of years ago. I then took a year out to travel the world. I packed my backpack and went to, I think, 17 countries in 11 months. Wow. Um, That's going it. Yeah. Whereabouts did you go, uh, roughly? Um, I started in Argentina, so worked my way around South America, up into North America, then through Asia, and finished in India. Wow. And, yeah, uh, uh, quite trip. Yes, and qu quite, quite intrepid. And, of course, we take it that uh, you're, uh, you're an animal lover or a lover of nature anyway, because, uh, uh, because you did your, your degree in biology. And now I understand you're, working, um, you're actually working in uh, natural history filmmaking. Yes, I am. So while I was travelling, I applied to do the Wildlife Filmmaking Masters at UE. Yeah. So that was kind of one of the reasons I came home, otherwise I think I probably would have travelled forever. <laughs> you just kept going. <laughs> yeah, just just kept going. Uh, found work along the way. But no, so I was, I was brought back to Bristol and uh, did the Masters last year, which was absolutely amazing. It was a crazy year. I learned all sorts of skills, which I'd never done before, and have luckily landed myself uh, pretty much the dream job. So I'm working for Sea Dog Productions, which is Monty oh. Hall's uh, oh, company. Yes. So we're yes. a really small um, independent company specialising in sort of wildlife, expedition, adventure, yeah. um, history documentaries. So I've been with them for uh, two or three months now and absolutely loving it, developing some really cool ideas. And well, hopefully seeing it will take me off to some crazy places again. Well, you've, you've also been in front of the camera, haven't you? Because as, as uh, I introduced this piece I, uh, and said, you know, this programme, Special Forces Ultimate Hell Week, is, is really all about um, the, the uh, extreme human endurance, isn't it? So tell, yeah. us, tell us first how that came about. Um, so a friend of mine, so the, the, the series I was in was the second series. And a friend of mine was involved in the first one. And when the whole application process came about for the second, he, he sort of pushed me and said, Katie, I think you'll be great at this. 
So I gave the whole application process a shot, um, got through a few rounds of, of the process. So I think I beat off a good few thousand applicants. Um, had wow. to endure a lot of fitness testing, medical assessment, psychiatric assessment, and somehow found myself in the final 22 on a plane to South Africa, which <laughs> we, we filmed it last April. So it's actually been, it's been quite a wait to, to finally see it come out on telly. And, and they really put you through your paces, don't they? Oh, God, yeah. It was mentally and physically brutal. I mean... From what you see on the telly, is only two days squished yeah. into one it's hour. An, so. edit, an edited fraction of what you went yeah, through. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I'm going to ask people that actually uh, I was doing that for hours, not the five minutes you see. I'm going to I'm going to ask you the question which everybody must ask. Presumably, <laughs> quite several times you must have thought, I I can't carry on doing this. Or, you know or, or, or did that didn't, no, no. I really? Didn't, no. Wow. I mean, there were times where I thought this is horrendous and I can't wait for it to finish. But in my head, I always knew that it was going to finish at some point. And it's just keeping that in your mind that this horrendous task, whatever it is, is whether it's locked in a box or trekking with double my body, you know, half my body weight is, is going to end at some point. Well, the, the series is still going on, isn't it? Um, yes, uh, it is. Uh, Special Forces Ultimate Hellwicks. That's, that's BBC Two, so people can find that there. You also made a, an, another film, which uh, um, is a, sort of a personal project, I think, um, uh, about Bulgaria. T- tell us about that, because that certainly has a, a more of a natural history theme, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So as part of the Wildlife Filmmaking Masters, we had to produce our own short film. And I got involved with a couple of zoologists who were planning an expedition in Bulgaria. And they kind of brought me on board as being uh, the film producer. So each of us had a science background, but we also wanted the uh, endeavour and the expedition side of the story as well. So the three of us set out to trek uh, a mountain range called the Radoki Mountains, which are in southern Bulgaria. It was a 400-kilometre trek. We were each carrying about 30 kilos of kit over mountainous terrain. Um, so we were there for a month. It was unbelievable. We were wild camping in bear-infested forests, which at times was a little bit sketchy as we had to carry bear spray, bear spray with us. Did you meet um, any bears? Unfortunately, we didn't. Mm. As mad as it sounds, unfortunate, but um, <laughs> I, I really wanted to film them. So I was a little bit gutted as I'd filmed them in um, Canada while I was travelling the year before. So it would have been amazing. But I think because in, in Bulgaria, the bears are quite heavily hunted, so they're just absolutely terrified of humans. Yes. And we were quite noisy with our you know our cooker at night. And yes, they just kept, they away. Just kept so I think their we distance. Just, yeah, yeah. We just scared them off. But the, the reason we chose um, this particular mountain range is because it's considered quite a biodiversity hotspot in Europe, uh, so that the eastern Rhodopes is actually a stronghold for birds of prey. So we did see lots of vultures, uh, golden eagles, and other raptor species, which was absolutely amazing, especially when we went for days on end without seeing anyone else at all. Um, Katie, you, you uh, obviously now you've you've got a foot in both worlds. So mm. you're 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 working now with a film company. You've you've learned all about how to make films. You've had experience both in front of the camera and behind the camera, and so on. So you know, we wish you very well for what looks like a very promising career. But you you, yeah. you, you, you also um, uh, are a scientist in the sense you've got it. You've got a degree in biology, and you care about the science. You have a passion for the science. Do yeah. you? Find 
find there. do you find that there's a tension between those two things um putting putting science on camera putting natural history on camera um i, I do think there is yeah there is a bit of a, a conflict sometimes i think you know i care a lot about the science obviously with with my background but when it comes to producing a film you want the most exciting and the, you know the most the most the best story that you can get out of a project and unfortunately science isn't always the most exciting element so yeah you know while i was in bulgaria we did carry out um surveys along the uh, entire mountain range looking for birds of prey but while it did feature in the film it wasn't the main element just because you know you can't create the drama you can't create the tension yeah. which is necessary for for creating a good story and a good film. Yes, reading reading out data isn't riveting viewing, <laughs> is it? <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, you you believe you can you can make it work and be true to the science and and make good television and uh, you know it's a it's a yeah. Uh, I really hope I do. It's just, it's just it's just trying to find that balance of of creativity and you know getting the the good solid science in there and making it exciting, which. I think it's a big challenge, and for anyone that undertakes it, I think fair play to them, and I really hope that more people do do it. Before we let you go, what are you working on now? Well, are you, I can't are tell you too much what I'm oh, working right. on. Um, I, I completely understand that. But there are that. some Good. exciting projects hopefully coming up, and hopefully you'll be seeing some more of me on your screens at some point, but... That's all I can tell you at the moment. I think that's absolutely <laughs> fair enough. I can completely understand that. Well, Katie Parrott, thank you so much for uh, no talking problem. to us. We wish you the very best with uh, all your enterprises, and you take care of yourself. I, I will try, yeah. <laughs> My parents do worry that I'll uh, end up in a ditch somewhere at some point. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope not. All the best. Thank you very much, Thanks Katie. Thank you very much. All right, bye-bye. Now, I'm also uh, very pleased to say that I have uh, with me uh, someone called Steve Wright, but not... Well, I was going to say the... It is the Steve Wright, but not that Steve Wright. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> <laughs> so, good to, good to have you, Steve. Um, also, Hello, from you... Correct, yes. I'm actually uh, a, a lecturer in, guess, get this, avionics and aircraft systems. I love so, that. So, um, yeah, well, my background is, is I haven't been playing this game very long as an academic. Um, before that, yes, for 25 years, I was an engineer and a systems engineer at, uh, in the aerospace industry. So you're a real practitioner. Well, the thing that, that brought you, you to our attention was that just a, um, only a few days ago, really, uh, you ran a, a, a competition and uh, it, it was billed as, I don't know if it was billed as the biggest. It might, it might well have Not, been. Well, it must be by definition because apparently it's the first. It's the first. Well, there you are. Both the first <laughs> the smallest. And, uh, and the biggest. Yes, and uh, my colleague just said also the smallest, but that's cruel. I mean, you shouldn't say. <laughs> yes. um, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, uh, dr basically, drone competition. Tell us, tell us what the challenge was. Yeah, the challenge is, is I mean, firstly, to back up, is to say everybody's familiar with drones and buzzing overhead at beaches and whatnot. So you see these quadcopters buzzing around. And there's a big sport out there now where people do what's called first-person view racing, where we, we strap a camera to the front of our drone, we put some goggles on, which stream that signal back straight to one's eyes and go tearing around the course. Right. Is that like up. pod racing? Pretty much like pod racing. <laughs> okay. When can I yeah. do this? Well, 
Straight away, funnily enough. Oh, cool. Yeah, so we, that's the wonderful thing about it. It's so cheap and accessible. Everybody's doing it. And it's really good. However, for me, I'm, I'm an engineer, I'm a software geek and whatnot, and I'm also a lecturer. So I'm trying to sort of take it up a level and make it a bit more technical, a bit more sophisticated. And, and this is where we were making the racing completely autonomous. In other words, we're not trying to get good at becoming good pilots. We're trying to develop software, systems, sensors, electronics that fly the drones for us and go tearing around. So it's a sort of love letter to all the geeks out there which, who haven't been able to, to buy their drones first person, really. So, so how, it was absolutely great. Thing. So how did, how did the day go, then? It was re- Well, it was two days. Oh, two days. As you can imagine, with something so technical as this, there was a lot of people scratching their heads and, and, and worrying over software and systems. Did, do, you have and any so, cra- do you have any crashes? Oh, I do. We have crashes left, right, and centre. Yeah. I'll tell you about the crashes at the end as well. Um, yes. Yeah, so what we in fact did was there was the race in one part of the um, exhibition and conference centre here at the University of Western England, <laughs> and also just to, to keep things fun, we had another arena where because I should comment that all this operates behind a netted off area. We had another area, another arena set up with lots of drone toy drones really and then anybody could rock up we had people from i would have said from five through to 60 or 70 flying drones in this other one just for the fun of it yeah so we had all that but uh, yes in the main area yeah so. no sorry you carry on i didn't want to stop oh, you yeah no, no, the um so so the main area was with people scratching their heads over that and and so yes we did have plenty of plenty of prangs and things it was very interesting to watch because first morning people arrived and you could see things were not working so the first two hours people were scratching their heads trying to get things to work and then the first drone burst into life and went flying around the around the course we got so it was great fun and then by the second morning things were really on and it was a quite a hilarious finish in the end actually because um well, I'd, I'd, I'd offered some prize money just to keep things interesting. Yeah. And by it was 15 minutes to go. There was two seconds between the fastest people around the course. One lot had managed 31 seconds. The other lot had gone 33 seconds. Wow. That's, and they were uh, doing better all the time. And there was 500 quid riding on that too. Uh, this is the stuff of drama, isn't it, Steve? Just... <laughs> it was high jeopardy, you can imagine, yeah. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> and and th- you called it the Micro Aero Autonomous Extremes Europe Contest. I, what, congratulations yeah. on the name. It's <laughs> Max, it, yeah. all drawn out, yeah. <laughs> yes, that was, that was actually, I, could, I should mention um, the idea of John Bradford, who, uh, who runs an organisation called High Tech Bristol and Bath, and his, his raison d'etre is to is to conjure up all these sort of fun events like this, and it was he that sort of... That, uh, sort of has been riding me to say, "Oh, are you going to do this crazy race idea that you've had for so long?" So that was uh, that was all part of the fun. What, what, what was your What was your main goal in in, in doing this? Well, I mean, th- there's nothing yeah. there's nothing wrong with just having fun, but, uh, but, <laughs> yeah. but presumably you had to put a lot of effort and work into it. Well, did Did you have another goal in mind? Well, the main thing, to be honest, is is just to whip up. Yui, obviously, but also Bristol and the South West in general yeah. as 
as an aerospace centre. I mean, we've always been an aerospace place around here, of yeah. course. Yeah. And, and it's one of the things... For a very long time. brought me here in the first place, in fact, yeah. Mm. I, I, only, I, I only moved to Bristol 25 years ago. And it was very much the aerospace... <laughs> so a really newcomer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. But, and, uh, uh, the, the, and so this is really this this is obviously uh, made you into a bit of a commentator on uh, drone like things yeah. and and, and um, uh, you've been um, i know that you've been called upon to talk about a story uh, from another part of the world from dubai because dubai dubai has announced passenger drone plans and it says that a drone that can carry people will be in regular operations in dubai from july um so that immediately makes me think of the crashes you were just talking about yeah um and that is exactly what popped into my mind yes the background to all this was yes i was talking to the bbc about it It was really interesting um and as you can imagine i'm entirely composed of opinions on stuff like this because it struggles the two worlds that I inhabit perfectly. In that, of course, I'm drones now, but in my previous life, <laughs> I used to build large passenger aircraft, like uh, design the things like the A380 I worked on. And so, yeah, it's a perfect combination of the two. And because of that, it gives me an, imp- an indication of just what a phenomenal mountain they, these, uh, these guys have got to climb in order to make an uncontrolled but passenger-carrying drone. And so, yeah. All hell break loose on the internet when I um, offered my opinion <laughs> how long it was going to take to do this. In fact, I've just, because there was so much interest, I've just posted a, an article, you know, backing up some of the thoughts and things that were said on all this. But it's a, it's a remarkable project, this manned drone, where literally the plan is to get into, into a drone and be carried uh, across the city to, the, to other parts of Dubai. It's but real. It's they this... really have got a long way to go with that. And I really hope they solve their problems, but I will be impressed if they crack it by 2025, maybe even 2030. That's the sort of timescales it actually takes. It, it to may... make. Sorry, go on. Mm. Yeah, they, that, that's the sort of time it takes to, to make a manned aircraft. Because yeah. any fool can make it a thing that sort of staggers off the ground. The trick is making it come back down again safely. Not just once, but twice, but a thousand times, even more than that, in fact. Absolutely. I was watching, um, I saw the film Hidden Figures last night about the, um, you know, the people behind Catherine Johnson, etc., behind the first space flights out of America. And oh, really? it, it feels, yeah. um, it's a wonderful film, I would definitely recommend it, but it feels like you're kind of, if you're one of the first people in these uh, drones, yeah. you're kind of risking your life in the same way as those first astronauts, aren't you? A kind of, although at least we can take a much more measured approach. I mean, what, as I was saying, in, in all this two that blew up, was I would like, you'd want to see at least a thousand hours of, ma- of unmanned, testing before we even put a sort of slightly intrepid test pilot in yeah <laughs> well, so, it, it reminds one doesn't it it reminds one of the all the testing that's going on with the driverless cars but yeah. of course the, the worst thing that's likely to happen to you is that the car would stop if a drone stops it's kind yeah. of a bit more significant pulling into the hard shoulder of the m5 from three thousand feet is a slightly more 
problematic. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yes, and I, so it's exactly those sort of issues which which are going to dominate that sort of equipment. Yeah, right. and and anybody who's seen Fifth Element or Blade Runner knows that this isn't <laughs> going to end well. Yeah, well, it, I want one nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve. Steve, we go, we go, we're going to follow your progress with interest and uh, just see, see what happens. Thank you uh, so much for uh, talking to us. That's, that's uh, really interesting. And we wish you well with, uh, with your you continued much. research and your work. Thank you. It's something that I really want to do for Bristol. And it really, uh, it really helping to dig things up around here. Okay. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye now. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio. And uh, we were just uh, earlier talking to uh, Steve Wright, uh, of uh, University of West of England, who's uh, an avionics uh, specialist, and uh, that was a, that was a very interesting interview. Yeah. I thought. Um, so, uh, t- talking, staying with space, SpaceX, SpaceX, yeah. launches and lands Falcon rocket from historic space. So I'm not sure where I got that from. I think that's a Guardian story, uh, but it's all over the place as well. And, um, of course, they had a bit of trouble early in the week, didn't they? They did, yeah. They've been, uh, well, it wasn't too bad, but they, they just held back a bit because there was a, it was something like a 1% chance that something might go wrong. Um, it, it, in itself, the problem wasn't uh, necessarily catastrophic, but it could have signaled that something further up the line had gone wrong. So they just delayed the... If that's what you're talking about, they just delayed delayed the launch. But it launched yesterday, and um, I I think this is just about as exciting as a launch gets without having people on board. Because it took off launching cargo and uh, science experiments for the International Space Station. It's going to take two days to get there, but... That sort of thing happens fairly regularly every three months or yeah, so. Yeah. What's different about this one, which is we've happened a few times now, but what's different about this one is that the rocket that they launched it with came back to Earth safely so they can use it again, making space travel dramatically le- uh, less expensive. Now, is this the thing called the Dragon capsule yeah. that they're talking about? Right. Yeah. Okay. So it reached, uh, that reached orbit. Yes. Oh. And then they, they um, so, so so it's a reusable, reusable, yeah, reusable rocket technology. Absolutely amazing. Because when you think about the way in which rocket technology has developed over the years, we have these enormous. I mean, I, I, I don't think unless people have been to the science museum or other places in London to see bits of rocket, you have no idea how big these things are. Yeah, yeah. Um, on the Saturn V, I mean, you know far more about this than I do, but I'm just, <laughs> just going to say, on the Saturn V, they use Rolls-Royce engines to pump, just to pump the fuel. Yeah. Because the thing is so big and so much fuel has to go through uh, so quickly into the mixing chambers. Yeah. And, t- and, and you think of the sheer... Well, waste is a is a strange word because you know I'm glad that we have been into space and done all these things, but an awful lot of the of the ship itself is is lost. Most of it, the vast majority of it, is is just uh, left in space. To have reusable technology is wonderful. Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? And and the um, so there's that, but then on board 
just you know because we see the launches and i don't think often that people talk about what's actually on board what's going to the international space station and in this one there is um as we we're just talking about um drones that fly themselves around dubai this uh, on this on board this rocket to the international space station is uh, a self navigation system for spacecraft so this will be spacecraft propelling itself around the universe um so, autonomously so what does that mean that it's making its own decisions then? yeah so it's going oh I, I think i might just go to the moon or... yeah that sort of thing i mean i don't <laughs> know i don't know how far it goes but yeah that sort of thing it's an experimental spacecraft uh self-navigation system there's a medical experiment on immune system diseases and an instrument to measure the ozone aerosols and other gases in the atmosphere as well as a lightning imaging sensor which can see uh, the lightning and measure its intensity across the whole planet uh, uh, from the International Space Station. I mean, a wonderful science launching with wonderful engineering. Yes, and and of course, being all being done as a as a private uh, project as mm. well by uh, by Elon Musk. Well, uh, it turns out that that's the that's the end of uh, the program today. Uh, we've. Um, uh, still got loads of stories, but uh, to hear some of them and the new ones, you'd need to join us again uh, next week. So uh, it's been a pleasure having you with us from Andrew and me. It's goodbye and have a very good evening. Love and science.